Welcome to Women on the Line, one of Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs programs, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Hope Matumbu. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. In November 2019, ahead of World AIDS Day, La Trobe University's Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society held a one-day symposium looking critically at the intersection points of HIV and people's lives, especially people and communities affected by HIV who have not been at the centre of the Australian HIV response. Over the next four weeks, you will hear recordings from the symposium of different public health professionals discussing various aspects of HIV and intersectionality. This week, you hear from me, Hope Matumbu, wearing my hat as the Secretary of the Victorian African Health Action Network, or VAHAN. At this symposium, I gave an introduction into the term intersectionality. You will also hear from Chiedza Malunga, who is also a member of VAHAN, as well as a long-time professional in the HIV space. First up, let's hear from me, Hope Matumbu. So first off, I think it was really important what uh, Peter said, and whenever I acknowledge country, it's really locating myself as a person of migrant heritage. Um, who has sought for a very long time to make home in life on what it was, is and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, so I, and, and that really ties into intersectionality. Um, we'll talk a bit about uh, locating ourselves. But anyway, I'd just like uh, to reiterate Peter's acknowledgement. So just a quick content, this is just like a, an intersectionality 101 and uh, hopefully the whole day will tie in together as other people speak about different things. So intersectionality is grounded in the history of black feminism, which dates back to the mid-19th century, uh, when women such as Sojourner Truth, um, an abolitionist and women's rights activist, highlighted the marginalization of black women in the suffrage movement. Um, so up there, I just have like a bit of a quote from a spa- famous speech that she gave um, in 1851 when she addressed the Ohio Women's Convention, highlighting the ways that white women tried to exclude black women from getting the right to vote. Um, she also pointed out ways in which white women and black women needed different kinds of outcomes from the suffrage movement. So, I mean, it's really interesting because from a white woman's perspective, it's like, we don't want doors opened up for us and, and, you know, to be carried in and out of carriages. We want to work, we want to do this. But for black women who had been slaves for a lot of the time, they just wanted a break. And so Jonah was like, well, nobody's left and ever, ever lifted me up over ditches um, and, 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 and done anything for me. I would just like a break. And that's what, you know, women's rights and the suffrage movement, that's what she was fighting for. Not saying that people can't come together, but the things that people need and want can be different. Um, so, so, so that's something to keep in mind. 
Um, and then throughout the 20th century, numerous women of color, scholars, writers, activists, um, continued, like Sojourner did, to articulate uh, unique marginalizations of women of color at the intersection of race and gender. Um, and then in 1977, as you can see uh, in the second quote, um, the Kombayi River Collective of black lesbian feminists, um, you know, spoke a bit as well about finding it difficult to separate race from class from sex oppression because in their lives um, they were most often experienced simultaneously. Um, and then fast forward to 1989, when the actual term intersectionality was coined by a critical legal scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw. And she introduced this concept in her critique of anti-discrimination law. So in, 70, in 1976, five black women were suing General Motors uh, against a policy that they argued targeted black women exclusively. So they were unable to get jobs at the front because they were black and those jobs for, were for white women and they were unable to get jobs at the back um, in the manufacturing part because that was for um, men. So, you know, there was no way for them to be employed because of this double discrimination. But back then, um, when this case went, they lost, actually, because um, legal systems and that sort of thing could, you know, you couldn't, uh, you, there was no such thing as double discrimination. They didn't really understand this concept. So as part of like her dissertation and her work, she looked at and coined this term that we've now come to use today. And just to sort of say that, you know, it's, it's a framework that's been used by other people. I guess it was crystallized by Kimberly Crenshaw, but it keeps evolving. Um, and that's something to remember. Um, it keeps evolving and can, and, and there's a lot of reading to do about it anyway. So I've just kind of um, synthesized a few parts, a few things that I'll just be touching on in terms of my understanding of what Kimberly uh, Crenshaw, so this is like the, the main framework that I'll be speaking to today. Um, so all of who I am, this relates to factors of identity, so locating yourself politically and socially, which is really what an acknowledgement of country is in, in, in my perspective, but sometimes people do it like robots. You know, there really isn't that thinking about, about place. There isn't that thinking about this is Nam or Melbourne and knowing where you are at every, at, at every single point in time. So. Uh, and it's also about how people self-identify as well, which is really important uh, for, for communities. Um, so all of who I am is also how I, 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 I choose to identify. Um, and how I personally choose to identify is to also identi identify power and, un uh, and unearned privilege. So it's not also about intersecting forms of oppression, but it's about the power an unearned privilege that you have as well. And that's how we can maybe be better allies to other people because some people have been left behind. So as Peter was saying about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander HIV Awareness Week starting out, being around for a really long time, but not something that people support. And as someone of the Western suburbs, people have won the Safe Foods Cray Park, it was really great. 
but what's going to happen with Japwarang as well. So in order to be allies as well, we need to also use, locate ourselves and use our power and privilege um, to pass the mic to other people as well. And also say all of who I am isn't necessarily all of these oppressions, it's also this privilege um, that I got somehow. So for me, it's being, um, you know, an economic migrant. And so my story is, is different to that of an asylum seeker or refugee. And I need to locate myself and also know when my privilege requires me to step back and let other people have a voice who do not have that power and privilege. So locating ourselves on various levels. Women on the line. Oppressions, you know, oppressions is ways of knowing and doing by those with power and authority as individuals or as part of institutions. Sometimes people call this white supremacy. That's what I like to call it, but you can call it whatever you want, you know? Um, and this, you know, they wield this power um, to create uh, marginalization and subjugation of those who don't have institutional authority or power often indigenous people, um, black and other racialized people. And we need to understand uh, systematic forms of disempowerment and brutality so we can make room for an intersectional analysis. We need to connect the human experiences of violence historically and currently. Um, violence includes physical, sexual, and psychological harm to individuals or collectives, whether it be um, anti-indigeneity, anti-blackness, classism, sexism, ableism, trans transphobia, and homophobia. Violence, uh, violence by police in black indigenous communities is an example of public and private <laughs> race, gender-based, uh, and class-based violence. And really, we're speaking at a time when we're seeing um, prominently the kinds of violence that, uh, that, that has been perpetuated against um, Aboriginal men at the moment. Um, and so we also need to take that into account. But historically, I guess, um, as an HIV-based community, um, people have experienced violence at the hands of, of institutions, you know. Um, and, and before HIV, there was the Tuskegee experiments as well. When we look at it from a sexual and reproductive health side of things, the kinds of violence that people's bodies has been that people's bodies have been put through. Um, and, and it's very interesting, and, or you can look into, you know, lock hospitals and, and that sort of thing when we're looking for, um, you know, a specific historical context to that as well. Um, and then resistance. Um, actualizing resistance is critical to intersectionality. It's the struggle to survive, exist, persist, and fight to eradicate practices of colonialism, racism, and other forms of violence, um, as I mentioned before. And when we talk about resistance, you know, that thing that I mentioned about, you know, some people, people running along with Greta, that was a great march. Um, Saving Footscray Park was really great, but what about Japwarang and other ways of understanding environmentalism? Um, and so when I kind of think about like ecological struggles and environmentalism at the moment, it's really just about like the catch things, um, but also understandings of connection to land, 
is different to other people. So in that space as well, we need more of an intersectional lens. Sorry, I'm just really hung up about the environment right now, <laughs> what people are or aren't doing. And birthing trees are important. You know, we've got projects like such as Birthing on Country, which is such a great project now, trying to um, trying to revitalize, you know, concepts around, um, you know, practices around Aboriginal um, maternity models of care. Um, and that's such an important project. And when we talk about birthing trees as well and, and look at the history of that and, and try and understand different intersections, it's, it's very interesting. And anyways, in terms of HIV, I guess other people can talk about where we'll go, but, you know, challenging existing knowledge and interrogating gaps and silences so what we mentioned, you know, what Peter mentioned before as well, exploring the roots of stigma, discrimination, and health barriers. Um, and this is where I think we need to go. But, you know, overall, intersectionality has been happening in the HIV space for, for a long time, whether people have articulated it or not. So, you know, from 87, the conference being moved because of the US ban against HIV positive people entering, you know, just even the fight uh, for, for people living with HIV to be included in the conference and trying to, you know, push back on science's stronghold on the topic, pushing back against the pathologizing of their unique identities and experiences. And so we've come a long way in that. Um, and I think that it's important to remember as well that intersectionality isn't about you know, an additive sort of thing, like adding different kinds of things, but it's about exploring the roots of stigma and discrimination and healthcare barriers that people face. Um, and it's about interventions that explore things on the micro, which is like personal and interpersonal, meso, societal, um, community, um, and on the macro, so uh, on, a, on a national level as well. Um, and then, you know, resistance, as we spoke about before, um, and yeah, reconceptualizing agency to include uh, privilege and oppression simultaneously, as I've discussed before, and uh, political orientation grounded in solidarity rather in, than in sameness. Um, yeah, so I hope that made sense. Um, where to go for more information? I think that an organization that definitely works with an intersectional framework is MCWH. So, you know, attending, like getting some of them to speak, and sort of like trying to look at things from an intersectional lens, I think they do really great work. Um, the Ontario uh, HIV Treatment Network. Um, I will be doing some recordings because I also am part of 3CR, but I just remember a great show last year around disability, sexuality, and HIV. That was really great. Um, so maybe you can go and, and have a listen um, to that. Thank you. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. If you're just tuning in, this is the first of a four-part series with recordings from a one-day symposium looking into HIV and intersectionality. You just heard me, Hope Matumbu, in my role as a public health professional discussing the term intersectionality. Next up is Chiedza Malunga discussing HIV and various intersections. I've been working in the HIV space since I set foot in Australia, um, which was back in 2008, and I was 
I was the, possibly the only black face in terms of African heritage. But before I begin my talk, I'd like to acknowledge that um, I am who I am today because of a combination of factors. I am who I am today because Britain colonized my home country. I am who I am today because I moved to Australia and I've interacted with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who have not um, celebrated and experienced the freedom of moving from being colonized to being um, self-determined and running your own country in spite of all the disadvantages and advantages that come with that. And I am who I am today because I've given birth to a daughter in Australia whose school has got a very strong Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander policy and has encouraged them to get a totem in order to get children to appreciate and preserve the animals and the environment that we're in. So my daughter has abandoned the totem of our heritage and has taken on the platypus as her new totem because she is Australian. I've got a daughter who says, why do you say you are black, we are brown? So it's a very difficult world because I am even being challenged in my own views and perceptions of intersectionality. So to go back, I first start by saying we live profoundly in an unequitable world. Things are not equitable, right? And unfortunately, if we don't, and if I say if we, I'm talking about minority groups, if we don't highlight our deficits and vulnerabilities, we'll become invisible. And it really breaks my heart to be able to stand in front of people and say, you know, we need more resources, we need this because we're disadvantaged, because that's not how I was brought up. I was brought up to focus on strengths and resilience. I was brought up to seeing if something is wrong, what do you have inside of you to be able to overcome it? Yet when I come into the context that I work in and live in in Australia, I have to say I'm disadvantaged in order to get funding. So when Peter introduced the day, he said, we don't have funding for this event today. I said, it's not a big thing for me because most of the community events we do, we are not funded. We're in someone's house, we all bring a plate and we share. So when I come to events like this where there's aircon, there's nice chairs, there's food, I'm like, wow, the intersections of finance and, well, welcome to our world. We meet in houses, we meet in community centers that have no lighting, that require us to have public liability insurance, which we cannot afford, and we are never funded. Right? So when I come to what does colonialism mean and how does it work in this context? I am a child of a war veteran. I am a child of people who fought war to liberate me. I've got siblings who were born before independence and I was born after independence and our perception of the world is very different. Colonialism is the policy of, or practice of acquiring political control. So when we say policy or practice, I want you to think about that all throughout today. There are policies we have that are occupying space, and there are practices that we have that still occupy space and cause disadvantage. So when I look at myself today, I'm wearing House of Dizzy earrings. This is not a sponsored clock. I love her earrings. She's an Aboriginal woman who does these earrings that speak out on different things. And today I'm wearing the future is intersectional. So the future is intersectional because our policies and practices have to change, including my own, right? I've told you how my daughter is challenging my view of the world already. But even in the work that I do, I have to keep on shifting because the future is not what it used to be. We never used to think about climate change and its impact on HIV. Well, if we're not thinking about it, we have to start thinking about it now, right? So when you look at colonialism, you go back to what's, what's HIV's ground zero story? Women on the line. 
if you look at HIV ground zero, it goes back to Africa and the ape or Africa and the chimp, isn't it? People don't really like the association of the ape or the monkey or the chimp with Africa. But do you know what, what other association is there? There is an association between an African, a chimp, and HIV. Right? So when we're talking about stigma, if you're black and you're coming from Africa and the stereotypes around monkeys and chimps and African people, you already are carrying a hat that no one else who's HIV positive carries. So to think about the story where it all started is saying, oh, there was an African and there was a chimp. And the likelihood is everybody says, oh, Africans like meat, they wanted to eat the chimp, the virus moved, whatever scientific explanation is there. But the backstory is during the same time, that is the time when Africa was invaded by colonialists, people were being moved. So the first displacement happened together with the inception of HIV. People were displaced from the Congo all throughout Africa. And up to today, if you look at the data and the stats around HIV, we still are the highest numbers across the world. So you move from Central Africa all through the belt to Southern and East Africa, we still occupy the highest numbers. And for a lot of people, they, I might not be scientific or back it up with science, but I'll tell you, when white people came, a lot of things came with it, right? And that story is never told. It's always told the chimp and the black man, and not saying the white man was with the whip, whipping the black man from one region to another. So I want that acknowledged in how we look at, the, um, at how HIV's story is told. Because when we remove that, we remove the actual story around how does displacement affect trajectory of illness. Together with that was another hidden public health issue. White people came with a very important thing that I appreciate today because immunization changed a lot of things for a lot of generations. But we all know the evils that started with immunization when one needle vaccinated a thousand people. All right? It led to some of my ancestors refusing immunizations because they actually thought immunizations are as evil as any of the other diseases that they were being protected against. Then came another new wave, which was my parents' generation, that really looked at it and said, no, it's good for our children to be vaccinated against polio and all of these other things, because it means that we're improving their life expectancy and their quality of life. So you have generations that have now been vaccinated, right? But you have to also remember that the first inception came with people who had a whip, who were driving around, people building roads and rails, and alongside with that came with people who wanted to protect themselves from infectious diseases that were foreign to them. So now when we move forward to now, what does this mean? Policies and practices of occupation and exclusion are evident in our research. Try and get any research on minorities, whether it's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, culturally diverse heterosexual people, culturally diverse uh, men who have sex with men, transgender, culturally, anyone born overseas who is, is not represented in any of our data in our research. And we always say, these people are hard to find. They are not hard to find. They are everywhere, right? We are visible. We are actually 100% visible. So it's about... What time do we take and what conversations are we going to have? When are we going to push back to our funding bodies to say it's not enough to make them a priority population, right? We are not a priority population. We are part of the population because we are Australian. That's one thing to consider. The other thing that is there is around our science. So if there are any clinicians in the room, genetic minorities are excluded from all testing and trials and research. And as a woman, I will also speak about the 
disadvantages that come with being a woman of a genet genetic minority and all of the things around HIV. Talk about the female condom, right? Nothing has changed with that drum. It's been a drum since its, its inception and it still continues to be a drum and no one thinks something needs to change. How sexy is the male condom? You get it in different flavors, different colors, glow in the dark, <laughs> anything you want, right? And yet women's sexual experience is dull and boring like a drum, right? So it, it makes me think, how are we sitting here and having conversations about the world being a better place, yet the only power that women have to protect themselves in areas where they are not able to access prep or any of those other things is to give them something that allows them to take charge over their reproductive rights. So I think it's a conversation. The female condom is definitely something you should remember if you forget everything else I said. <laughs> the next thing, I'm not that Jenny is making me ration, is S100 prescribers. Try and live in Pakenham and get a doctor who knows anything about HIV. <laughs> Nothing, right? The, the face of HIV has changed. Not everybody lives in a city. Right? It's so expensive to live in a city. It's very hard for someone living out in Pakenham to come all the way to either Fitzroy or Carlton or those are the only two clinics I know. See, my deficit is already. But those are the areas you have to come in a city to get an S100 prescriber. That has to change. You know, if it means someone has to be paid extra to do it, we need people living further out to be able to provide treatment. And last but not least, to look at all the intersecting systems of oppression. So Hope already alluded to them. I won't speak of them. Thank you very much for listening to me. We've come to the end of our second recording from a one-day symposium looking into HIV and intersectionality. You just heard Chiedza Malunga discuss HIV and various intersections. Before that, you heard myself, Hope Matumbu, briefly discuss the history and meaning of the term intersectionality. Join us next week for the second of our four-part series looking at HIV and intersectionality. In next week's show, Chiedza and I continue to discuss HIV and intersectionality, and we also hear from Olga Vujovic, an infectious disease physician. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and non-gender conforming broadcasters from 3CI in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show. So send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Latigre. I'm Hope Matumbu and I hope you can tune in again next time. <laughs>